Then I needed to be there, making sure that you know everything was running smoothly. Got home like around 11, but thank God nobody was hurt. Yes. What was it? Uh, some sort of gun, some sort of weapon at school. Yeah. All righty. So let's get into this. Um, have you ever heard the expression "face the music"? Yes. Right. How did that come about? So this is the story. Many years ago, a man wanted to play in the Imperial Orchestra, but he couldn't play a note. Since he was a person of great wealth and influence, however, he demanded to be allowed to join the orchestra so that he could perform in front of the king. The conductor agreed to let him sit in the second row of the orchestra, even though he couldn't read music. He was given a flute, and when the concert would begin, he would raise his instrument, pucker his lips, and move his fingers. He went through all the motions of playing, pretending to play, but he never made a sound. This deception went on for two years. Then one day, a new conductor took over, the Imperial Orchestra. He told the orchestra that he wanted to personally audition all the players to see how well they could play. The audition would weed out all those who did not meet his standards and he would dismiss them from the orchestra. So one by one, the players performed in his presence, frantic with worry when it was his turn, the phony flutist pretended to be sick. The doctor, there's a doctor, I don't know, why is there a doctor in a pure orchestra, you know, I don't know. The doctor was there, the doctor who was ordered to examine him, however, declared that he was perfectly well. The conductor insisted that the man appear and demonstrate his skill. Shamefacedly, the man had to confess that he was a fake. That was a day he had to face the music. In the same way, John the Baptist was having an addition of his own. He was separating the true believers with the fake ones as he was baptizing near the Jordan River. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 3 verses 1 through 12, and read God's word together. I'll give you a couple of seconds to get there. All right. This is the word of God, and it says, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this one, referred to by Isaiah the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts, that's grasshoppers, and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise children up raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. 
Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Into the fire. As for me, this is John the Baptist speaking, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I am. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Amen. Go ahead and next slide. So this is the theme of the 12 verses that we just read. God calls us to repent, believe, and bear good fruit. You see where I got that from? In the story, in the, in the message that we just read? Yes? He calls us, God calls us to repent, believe, and that's it. It's, and bear good fruit. Okay? Um, so this is the outline I came up with to more or less teach these verses today. Um, we're going to first talk about the setting, which are the first six verses, giving us a, a, a context of what's going on, explaining who the characters are. Then we're going to talk about the actual message that John the Baptist brings, and then the hope at the end of all of this. Okay? That's what we're going to do right now. But before that, next, we got to get to the historical context. What's going on here? Okay? In order to understand the significance of this, right? So we know that Matthew is what? Who was Matthew? He was a tax collector. He was a tax collector and he was one of the disciples, one of the twelve, right? So he writes this letter from a first-hand account of all that he saw and experienced. Yes? Okay? He writes this letter. What is the theme of Matthew? Y'all better get a good next Wednesday, yes. Jesus as king. Jesus as king. He's trying to convey to the Jewish reader who is reading this letter, guess what, guys? Jesus is king. This is the king that we have been waiting for. He offers evidence after evidence to establish Christ's kingly prerogative. You know that this gospel quotes over 60 Old Testament prophecies? emphasizing how Christ is the fulfillment of those prophecies. Why would he do that? Why would Matthew do this? What's the theme again? So why would he go back to the Old Testament, to all these prophecies? To do what? To what? To prove that, hey, he is the king. He is the awaited Messiah, right? So who do you think the audience is for this letter? Who would know all these 60 prophecies of the Old Testament? Pharisees and Jews. Jews, right? People who practice Judaism would know, right? So they're like, this letter is targeted to Jewish, a Jewish reader who would know those prophecies. Just like you. Like, you come to church and you learn Bible stories. You know all the Bible stories of Daniel, of Samson, right? Of, of the lion's den, of creation. Well... Jewish people, when they went to their synagogue, learned the same way and learned their stories. And they learned these prophecies of one day a Messiah will come to save us. Right? So I want you to have this in mind as we study today's passage. Two things are occurring. One, Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is king. 
through the fulfillment of prophet, the prophecy of John the Baptist, right? And at the same time, he's informing his readers the importance of what? Repentance, believing, and bearing good fruit. Got it? So it's a two-way purpose. Obviously, the, the purpose of the entire thing, guys, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Believe me. And at the same time, while we're reading it, we're learning biblical principles that God wants us to know of believing, repenting, and bearing good fruit. Repenting, believing, bearing good fruit. Amen? All right, we ready? Let's go to the set. One through six. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, what in those days? In those days refers to what? Specifically to Matthew 2.23, right? When we started, um, the last time we were here, we know that Jesus is in Egypt, and he comes out of Egypt, right? And he comes to back home, right? And he established himself in Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, right? So in those days, meaning in the days that Jesus was coming out of Egypt and then stayed there for a while, is those days that John the Baptist is mentioning. Who is John the Baptist? Who's John the Baptist? A disciple. Not a direct disciple of Jesus. He was a cousin, cousin of Jesus. Yeah. And what else was John? A prophet. a prophet, right? He was a prophet. He was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was a relative of Jesus Christ, and he baptized people for repentance of their sins, right? Uh, he was also beheaded by Herod at the request of his stepdaughter and niece. You know, we'll get to that eventually. Cain. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, right? Guys, I want you to know something. Yeah, sorry. For 30 years, it's, it's, we don't know what goes on, right? We don't know what goes on with John the Baptist and a lot of Jesus' life. We don't know. It's, it's, and we wonder why in all the gospel accounts, it, there's no record except for in Luke where Jesus is kind of a child and he's, he gets lost and the parents go get him in the temple. But other than that, it's basically birth and then boom, ministry, right? Luke 180, get it, 180. Luke 180, 80. Okay, you know, it's 80 verses in that chapter, pretty long. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. That's John the Baptist. And the Greek word for preaching, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and the Greek word for preaching means to herald, to herald. It was the official who, who was duty was to proclaim loudly and extensively, the king is coming. Okay, next. So, I don't know if you can see it well, but this is Jerusalem right here. This, around this area, is where John the Baptist was baptizing people. And you need to know this, because this is important. Because when it says people from Jerusalem and Judea were coming to be baptized, they were traveling. And we're going to see why it's important. But I just want to give you a mental picture of where John the Baptist and Jesus' first uh, temptation in the desert occurs south of the Galilee of the Dead Sea, which is there. Okay? Cool? Alright. Verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does repent mean, guys? What does repent mean? 
Repent. I'm gonna call on you. I'm gonna call on you. <laughs> Why no one wants to look at me in the eye? <laughs> what does the repent mean? Retreat could be one. What else? Two. To either stop doing one thing and start doing another. Good. To what else? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's part of repenting, yes. That's part, part of putting your faith in Jesus Christ is repenting, yes. It, it's a military term to mean you're going one way and you stop and go the opposite direction. Okay, I don't know if it's a military term or not. I can't say it, but... It's like countryside. But we'll take it. I'm just saying it's, it is. It is to turn away... Turn from what you're doing. Opposite, 180 degrees, and go away from it, right? So, why was John the Baptist telling people to repent? Have you ever asked that question? Repent from what? He doesn't know what we know. He doesn't know the gospel like we know it. Does that make sense to you? Like, what is he telling them to repent? Well, repent means more than be, to be sorry or even to change your mind. It echoes the Old Testament prophets' frequent summons to Israel to return to God, to abandon their rebellion and come back into covenant obedience. You know why he was telling people to repent? Because the king was coming. The king is coming. The king is near. And the king deserves it. He deserves our repentance to receive him. Right? Kingdom of heaven refers to the sphere of God's dominion over those who belong to him. Some commentators said the reason why he put kingdom of heaven because he's a Jewish leader. He didn't want to. When it comes to using the word God, the Jew is very, it's, it, it takes it very seriously. So they just don't want to use that term if they don't have to. So he was saying the kingdom of heaven is near, but you, it, it could be translated as the kingdom of God is near. Okay, the kingdom of God is near. Okay. And we move along to verse three. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So, in Old Testament context, guys, what is this? What is this? It's, it's anticipating this prophecy was during the exile when Israel was captive. You don't know what that is. We don't know. We barely know what war is. You were probably born in 2003 when the last official war the America was at. Iraqi freedom, 2003, right? Maybe some of you were, I don't know. What I'm trying to tell you is, imagine you being exiled, taken from your home, dragged to another country. In this case, it could be Canada or Mexico. Leaving everything behind. Culture, everything. God, everything. Starting a new life and being captive for moments of years, years after years after years. How would that make you feel? Lost without hope, right? Uh, remembering the days that you were happy and good in your home, right? Along come prophets and tell you, hey, don't worry about it. This is not forever. There's a Messiah coming and he's going to save us. And he's going to take all of this away. So that was in their mind. That was in their mind. So when John the Baptist is prophesying that the kingdom is near, Matthew saying, hey, remember that prophecy in Isaiah? This is him. He was preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah, the one who's going to save us, not only from this earthly kingdom, 
but for a heavenly kingdom. It had been 400 years of silence in Israel. No prophet. And now all of a sudden, they got John the Baptist calling people to repentance as the old, as the prophets of old did. How do we know that he was a prophet? Everyone let go quickly to Luke chapter 1, verses 57, verse 57 through 66. I'm going to read this quickly, okay? Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard the Lord had his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise a child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother, verse 60, but his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, because remember, his father was mute because he didn't believe in the prophecy at the beginning, what the angel told him, as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard from them kept in mind saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was starting with him. So they were they knew who John the Baptist was. They knew who his parents were. They knew the miracle that occurred. And people talk. People talk. So when John the Baptist starts his ministry prophesying, repent, the kingdom is near, and there's 400 years of silence, things are going to happen. And I only we're going to see real quick that the Holy Spirit, God is going to use the Holy Spirit to move people to go and get baptized and repent. And it's going to be a huge event. I don't know if you ever thought of it that way. I never did. I've always wanted to study this passage in more detail, and I had the privilege of doing so. This though is not like in the movies where it's a couple of hundred people. He's wearing the six-figure, some historians say. Okay, and we're going to get there. Um, the Jewish reader was familiar with Isaiah. He would understand, who would understand Matthew to be saying, all that Isaiah prophesies in chapters 40 through 66 is now available to you if you choose to recognize your king. This is the beginning of the glorious end. This is, this is John telling them, we can do this. We can have this right now if you believe. Verse 4. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. So why was this? Why, would he, why was he wearing this? Right? All right? Why was he wearing this? Why was he eating locusts and wild honey? Right? So he lived in the desert. We know that. We just I told you in Luke chapter 1 verse 80. But John's unusual clothing is intended to remind the reader of Elijah. 2 Kings 1.8, that's how he dressed. And not only that, in Zechariah 13.4, says also, basically garments were, of hair were apparently a common type of garb that prophets would wear. That was a wardrobe, right? And Zechariah says, also it will come a day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. And he, they will not put on a hair robe in order to deceive. So basically, during Zechariah's time, some were putting these things on to deceive and to prophesy, but they really weren't prophets. But to look like a prophet, they would put their garments on. So I'm just letting you know that the garment, is a, it's purposeful. Why? Because John, 
is later identified with Elijah by Jesus himself in Matthew 11, verse 14. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Because we have to understand, remember the story of Elijah? He was taken up in a chariot of fire, right? And all the prophecies said that before the Messiah would come, that Elijah would come and prepare the way. And Matthew's telling him, John the Baptist is, as Jesus said, the Elijah that you guys are waiting for, preparing the way of the Lord. Wait, so is he actually Elijah? No, no, no. It's, it's not actually Elijah, no. no. Elijah is Elijah. John the Baptist is John the Baptist. But the spirit, I guess, the, the idea of, John, of Elijah as a prophet coming back. The, the importance of the prophet of Elijah. Elijah was a big prophet. I mean, like, I don't know about you, but Lord, you know, you know, go... <laughs> Why don't you throw fire from heaven, right? And then you're making fun of, hey, why don't you shout to your fake God? Maybe he's sleeping. You know, Elijah, you know, he was pretty powerful in, in the eyes that God used him. So that's the power that they wanted to say. Like, just like the power that Elijah had, John the Baptist has that. Brandon, you want to help me out? Or it's no, that's good? That's exactly right. Okay. Good. Hey, man, I don't, know any, I, I don't know everything, right? I'm good. I, I'm willing to ask as well. Verse 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea. And all the district around the Jordan. Guys, this is important. Remember that picture that I showed you? The immediate effect of John the Baptist preaching was dramatic. Okay, I want you to think about this. People were coming from the great city of Jerusalem, which was a, a distance away, about 76 miles. All right? Walking. It's not like they had like Uber or a car or a train or a plane or a helicopter. These people walked. And now they have like Nike or A Jordans. They had like Barry Sanders. Barry. All right, and they were they were making this trek, right? They came in fact from all Judea and all the districts around the Jordan. Matthew's point is that John was a major attraction. This baptism was not just a couple of hundred people. I told you earlier, six figures. A commentator writes, let me see if I wrote this. Whoever writes, when God chooses to move in a people, there is an enthusiasm or conviction that spreads through the hearts of many people. This can only be explained by the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, when God wants to do his will, his works, he's going to do it. What is God's will at this point, 30 AD? What is his will? In all eternity past, to eternity present, to eternity future, in this specific moment in history, what is God wanting to do? Who is he going to introduce? Who is going to begin his ministry? Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. At, at 30 AD, in God's perfect timing is when God says, Jesus, the Son, go. Do it. John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for you. Does that make sense? This is a big deal. Okay? And God is not, he is the Holy Spirit is moving, and God is moving, and he said, this is my time, and he's moving people, so all this can start, people can start talking about it. Moving, traveling 67, 67 miles to be baptized, right, to see what's going on. This is a big event, making way for the king, making way for Jesus. That's why Matthew is saying, look, this is a king. Who else would do this? Well, how else does it make sense if it's not Jesus the King? And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. 
for centuries. So why would, because you know what baptism is now, right? A lot of you were in the class yesterday. You, want, you know, it's part of you know, our obedience to the Lord to be baptized. But we know the Christian baptism, right? This immersion of water, right? But, but what is the Jewish baptism? Have you ever thought about that? Did you think that we're being baptized? Do you think it's the same sacrament that we do today? It's not. It's totally different. Okay? The reason why Jews would be baptized, were baptized people, were if you were a Gentile, meaning not a Jew, and you wanted to convert to Judaism, guess what? You would have to do what? Baptized. You would get baptized. Along with other things like memorizing parts of Moses' law, you know, um... Sacrifice, circumcision, all these other things, but baptism was used for Gentiles to convert to Judaism. Now, if that's the reason why, why are Jews being baptized if they're already Jews? To convert to Christianity? No, but that's a good that's a good idea. That's a good thought, but no. Symbolism. Okay, for what? Okay, why? but you're a Jew. I thought you were already saved. Right? So what's going on here? I don't know. I've always thought about it. And it was, it was very, I was very happy and, and excited to, to be studying this because I always had these questions, right? What does the baptism mean? I'm going to answer it right now. What does baptism mean? Anybody? Baptism? Yes, Joy? It means you've accepted Christ as your Savior, Savior and Lord others too. Okay. But the actual word to baptize somebody, what does that mean? Um, it means to. What was I going to say? Say the definition of baptism. Yes, Nahum? Yes, yes, good. To dip or immerse, that's baptism. So. It signified a person's willingness to turn from his or her sins and from the false belief. Like Ian was saying, that being born a Jew automatically puts you, puts the person in a right relationship with God. What does MacArthur say? Go back. Oh no, I didn't have that there. This is what MacArthur says. Hear me out. A Jew, listen up, listen, listen, this is important. A Jew who submitted to such a right demonstrated in effect that he was an outsider who sought entrance into the people of God. And you're saying, but I thought he was a Jew. I thought he was already part of that. An amazing admission for a Jew. Members of God's chosen race, descendants of Abraham, heirs of the covenant of Moses, came to John to be baptized like a Gentile. What was going in their hearts is exactly what you were saying, Ian. They were recognizing that just by being a Jew was not enough for salvation. A lot of them were hypocrites. They were living a life that did not honor God. And they were repenting from that. Coming to John the Baptist for that type of repentance. Now let's look at the message. Yes. Um, did the Jews, like, did all of the Jews have to follow all of the Old Testament law? Like, did they have to memorize it and follow all of it? We're going to talk about different sects of Jew uh, uh, within Judaism. Good question. So, next. So let's talk about the message. Verses 7 through 10. 
So now we know the setting, right? Everyone is understood with that, understands what's going on here in the setting. It's a big event. John the Baptist is baptizing people in the, in the desert, right? People out of, out of Jerusalem and Judea, they're coming, traveling 67 miles. Why is a Jew being baptized? Because many of those Jews are coming to repenting faith and saying, what I thought would have saved me is not obeying the Lord with my heart. And really loving God is what saves me. Right, repenting for my sins and putting my faith in Him is what saved. This is what's going on, right? And then we're going to talk about it next classes. Then Jesus comes and, and, and is baptized, right? But we'll leave that to the next person, to the next teacher. So that's there, and, and so then when everyone's there, look at what the message is, right? John the Baptist is. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come?" Let's break that down. So, first of all, why did the Pharisees and Sadducees come to see him? Why would, why would you think they would come to see him? So, these are two majors. Uh, there's three major sects. Uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, and then the other ones were... I was going to... I didn't want to, like, confuse it, but... They were more into, like, mysticism. And they were very in the... In, they, they were Their home base, like, in the desert. It was not very in the city life of Jerusalem. I believe they were... It begins with an N. I'm sorry. I should have had that for you, but... They're the people who did the Old Testament scrolls, right? That they found. The Dead Sea Scrolls, yes. Yes. Who are you talking? Yes, Essence. Thank you, guys. That's why, Brian. (laughs) You boy. All right. So, the Pharisees. You just know the main differences. They were middle class. Sadducees were upper class. They were. They believed in resurrection of the dead. They, the Sadducees, did not believe in resurrection of the dead, and. They were like, the Torah is, you know, a strict interpretator of the Torah. They were like, oh, there's interpretations of Torah, Torah. For the Sadducees, it was like letter by letter. For the Pharisees, it was like, oh, well, this means this. This It could also mean this. Uh, belief in the afterlife, no afterlife. Rejected the Jewish leaders, supported Jewish leaders. But you would think these two, they're always at it, right? They're, they're, they're Sadducees and Pharisees, they don't, they, don't, they don't come together unless it's hatred towards Jesus, right? These people are always going at it. You know, there's like politics, right? You know, you'll never see them going together. But they came together towards the hatred of Jesus Christ. Okay? So why were they there? So I'm thinking they were probably there thinking, hey, let's go and be forgiven just in case the king is really coming. Right? What a hypocrite does is let's go and ask for forgiveness because we feel bad. But not because we offended a holy God. They're probably, if you know the Pharisees and how Jesus treats them and talks to them, these are people who are hypocrites, where they tell you to live a certain way and they don't practice that. Okay? They don't care, they only care about themselves and their well-being. So they might think, hmm, hundreds of thousands of people are going to be baptized. I wonder what's that about. Well, if that is true, well, if this is a ritual, like I'm used to rituals, let me just do it as a check mark to be on the safe side. Remember I told in the beginning, there was believers and there were fake believers. The believers were there who were the ones that were what? Truly offended a holy God and wanted to repent from that. And the fake ones were like, hey, I don't want to go to, I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven. It's all about me. Not about who I have not offended or have offended. You see the difference there? Okay. Um, So calling the Pharisees and Sadducees brood of vipers pointed of the danger of their religious hypocrisy because a viper, okay, camouflages himself, right? 
and it looks like there's nothing wrong with him. It looks like a, like a, like a, like a tree a tree branch, camouflage on the floor or on the tree, harmless, right? But once you touch it, once you interact with it, it becomes deadly. Same thing as a Pharisee and a Sadducee. Oh, we're, we're here, we're doing our own thing. But once you start interacting and believing what they're saying and following the leadership they had, it was deadly. Okay? And basically, <laughs> brood was the fact that their wicked work had, had been passed on to them by the original serpent, which was Satan, through their spiritual forefathers who, have, who were their brood or offspring. Like the desert viper, they often appeared to be harmless, but their brand of godliness was venomous and deadly. What does that mean? Venomous and deadly. Their brand of righteousness, their brand of religion, what they were preaching and teaching was kind of like what happens today. Have you ever heard, we talked about antinomianism? Have you heard that? Remember the easy believism? Have you heard that? Where churches across America tell their congregation, all you have to do is believe. Don't change your life. Don't change anything. Just believe in, the, in Jesus Christ your Lord and you will be saved. Doesn't matter how you're going to act afterwards. You can even kill. You can even become an atheist afterwards. But as long as you believe that one time, you have eternity. You are saved. While they are half right because part of salvation is believing. But they forgot the other side, which is what? Repenting. What is John the Baptist telling them? Repenting. Bear good fruit. That is venomous. You know how many people are in churches today thinking that they're saved? And are actually not. You see the danger in that? This is what the danger. This is why he's calling them brutal vipers. You're killing people with your message. The question, who warned you to flee, continues the viper illustration. A brush fire or a farmer burning the stocks in his field after the harvest would cause the vipers and other creatures to flee before the flames in order to escape. This implication is that the Pharisees and Sadducees were expecting John's baptism to be a kind of spiritual fire insurance, meaning giving protection from the flames of the wrath to come. Guys, were they really there because they offended a holy God? Because they were tired of offending the Holy God? Because they felt so bad that they offended God that they wanted Him to forgive them? Or were they there because they're trying to get some sort of indulgence, some sort of, you know, guarantee? Hey, you know, I'm a pretty good person, you know. I came and did the baptism thing. So, yeah, I'm saved. Verses 8 through 10. Therefore, so he continues with the message. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. D.R. Carson, he states, The coming of God's reign either demands repentance or brings judgment. Repentance must be genuine if we wish to escape the coming wrath. True repentance can only and should and will have genuine, uh, corresponding with genuine works, demonstrating both attitudes and actions, which means Ephesians 2.10, we've, we've all read it. 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we would walk in them. Guys, there has to be a difference. If there is a true repentance in your heart, if you truly believe in Jesus, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is no way you can be the same person before that moment in the time when you say, Lord, you are my Lord, my God, like, like Thomas said. You can't be the same. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, the new things have come. i got a couple of deep questions for you. Kind of like jumping ahead of the application. What are your motives in coming to youth group or church? Think about that. What are your motives? What are, what are, what are our motives? What is my motive in preparing this teaching for you? Is it doing works to be good with God? Thinking that we can do anything to help our salvation? Or is it a genuine wanting to learn about His Word? Wanting to fellowship with other believers? Wanting to worship Him for who He is? I'm not going to say that it's always perfect. No. I'll be the first one to tell you in my reading plan... You know, I try to do it, and there's sometimes I'm just doing it as a check mark, like I did it, while there are other days I'm doing it and I'm learning and while I'm meditating it. And we're not perfect. I don't want you to think that we're perfect. We're not. And there's moments that you probably will have pharisaical tendencies. You know, it's, it happens. We're human. But it's not, it shouldn't be a pattern. You should wake up in the mornings and pray and worship and, and, and read the word because you love God. Because you love obeying Him and following His commandments. Not because, oh, I got to make sure. When Alejandro asks, yes, that's me, and I can feel good in front of everyone. Or, oh, my parents took to get them off my back. They look to, for them to see me reading the word, check mark. Or for me to think that some of you probably do think that you're going to earn your way to heaven. Some of you probably do see yourselves as not that bad of a person. I pray, and your parents pray, that one day those eyes will be open to your sin. That you will come before the Lord repenting. Bowing your knee to Him. Because there's no other way. What are our motives of reading the Word and praying? Do we do it out of love or do we do it out of works thinking that it will make us right with God? Guys, this story is not so far from us. We can be those Pharisees and Sadducees. People today are those Pharisees and Sadducees. This is going to not hurt, but this is going to come. It's going to come deep. Paul concludes that not all children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. Romans 4 verses 16 says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. Meaning the faith that you have is what... Is what saves you, not your lineage. How do we relate to this? Right? Those Sadducees and Pharisees thought that, oh, because I'm a Jew, Abraham is my daddy. I'm going to heaven, baby. How can that relate to us today? Especially you guys. Not so much us, because we're already old and out of our parents' household. But how could you take this example to you guys? How could you take it? Because you think that because your parents are Christians, then you're going to go to heaven, <laughs> which isn't true. Ooh. I, I'm a, I'm a, it's a wake-up call, letting you know 
When it comes to judgment day, guys, you are going to stand by yourself before God. And God is going to see all that you've done. Not what your parents did, because you can blame it all on your parents. They ain't going to be there. You will stand alone before God. It is your decision to make if he is your Lord and Savior. Not your parents. Your parents are praying for you since the day you were born until whatever, until that they can concur that you are saved. We pray for you all day, every day. I pray for you. I know the leaders pray for you. We pray for your salvation. But don't think that because your parents are men and women of God, that they serve in the church and they give their life to God, that you are automatically in there because you're not. The Pharisees thought. John the Baptist is telling them, don't think because guess what? These stones that are in this river... God can make them children. That means nothing. What means everything is the faith that Abraham had. To believe in God. To depend on God. That's the same faith that I encourage you to have. Not because your parents tell you. But because literally one day you will be before a holy God. And what will your response be? Or what will, what will he say of you? Guess what? At the end of the harvest, there were some trees that were what? That didn't produce any fruit. What did the farmer do? Cut them, trees. Down. Cut them down. And what did he do with them? Burn them. Why? Because it's taking space for a tree that does bear fruit. Right? And that's why he says, Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Good fruit. What does good fruit mean? Can, a, can an apple tree give oranges? No. No. Unless God wants it to. But we're not going to get there right now. Right? Yes, but no. Right? Can a lemon tree give apples? No. No. A true believer will not have perfect fruit, but there will be good fruit somewhere, somehow, down the line in his life to show that he is. Does that make sense? Yes. Bearing good fruit is a sign that you are saved. Not that it's going to get you to heaven because that's what the Bible, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But an evidence of your salvation is the good fruit that you would give. Everything good that you have is a fruit of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Amen? So fire is frequent biblical symbol for torment and divine punishment. We see it in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19.24. And we also see it, um, uh, remember the story of Korah and his followers when the ground uh, swallows them. And then the rest of the followers that were there, fire comes from heaven and, you know, destroys them. So it, fire is, a, is a symbolic for torment and punishment. Now, that was the message. So we got the setting. We got the message. Now let's look at the hope. As for me, I baptize you with, with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. D.A. Carson states, John's water baptism relates to repentance. The water relates to what? Repentance. The water relates to what? 
repentance. But the one whose way he's preparing will administer what? A spirit fire baptism that will purify and refine. That's the type of baptism Jesus comes and the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Like to metal. Yes, exactly to metal. Guess what? And they, the Jewish readers that are reading this letter, they knew that that's was something they were looking for. Because we know that in Ezekiel 36-26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of, of, of a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is something that the Spirit does. This is something that the people of Israel were waiting for, that the Spirit to come over like this. And one more, among others that I had. Sorry, it's not there. Um, Zechariah 13, 9. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. <laughs> They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Amen. The fire that purifies, guess what? Will also destroy all that is worthless. Jesus too talks about destructive element in his mission. Using very similar, similar words throughout his teachings. Next. One of the, when he says that I'm, I'm not even worthy of taking his sandal off. John the Baptist is just giving glory to Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. Basically, taking the sandal was the worst, like the lowest, lowest, what a slave servant would do in the house where you would go as a guest. You would take off your sandal and wash your feet. It's the lowest of lowest. So John the Baptist is saying, I'm doing this, but the one that's coming before me, I'm not even worthy of taking off his sandals. So this baptism has nothing compared to the baptism of the king when he comes. And then he says, next, I want you to look at that picture. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. This is a winnowing fork. It's basically uh, a wooden fork that has, uh, it's like a, like Poseidon's um, trident. So what they do is, the farmer goes into the stack of wheat, throws it in the air, right? When he's throwing it in the air, what falls down is the actual grain, the good part of the wheat. The shaft, which is the bad part, is blown away by the wind, right? So the, the chaff that's left is blown away so that he collects the grain, the good fruit, puts it in his barn, and guess what they do with the chaff? Burn it. They burn it with what? With unquenchable fire. Again, another illustration of those who produce the good fruit, those that are, I am in them, the Holy Spirit dwells in them, the ones that give good fruit will be with me in my kingdom. But the ones that don't, Will suffer unquenchable fire for eternity. Next. Three points of application, guys. Number one, repent and believe. If you haven't personally repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only source for salvation, guys, don't leave this meeting today without doing so. There will be a separation one day of believers and non-believers and for the unbeliever, the end result is unpleasant. Place your faith in only Jesus today for salvation. Your works cannot save you, only He can. If you have more questions on this, please talk to any of the leaders afterwards. We're more than willing to explain the gospel in as many ways that we can for you. Second point, examine your fruit. 
Does your lifestyle reflect a decision for Christ? Can you say that your fruit is fruit of the Spirit? Do others look at you and say, hey, that, that person is different. What does that person have that I don't? In the sense of the peace that you portray, the obedience to your parents that you portray, the fruit. I'm not saying that you're perfect because we're not. But the fruit, the fruit that you expect of a leaders to have. Because can you imagine us being leaders to you and us saying bad words, treating our wives differently, you know, telling my kid, you know, treating him bad in front of you. And that would be a pattern. You would say to yourself, why is he a leader? Because you would judge me based on what? My what? My actions. Or what's another word for actions? My fruit. Examine your fruit. Are you reading the word? Are you wanting to fellowship with other believers? When you sin against the holy God, do you feel sorry because you offended God? Or do you feel sorry because of the consequences that you're going to receive from your parents? These are important questions for you to ask, for us to ask ourselves. And finally, part of the good fruit that you produce as a believer is to share this gospel, to share this news with others, with every person you can, all day, every day, praying for those that you want to be saved. And then speaking the gospel, this, the good news. As a believer in Christ, it is a commandment. And guess what? As a believer, you're going to want to do it. Because you're not going to be able to be quiet because the Holy Spirit is going to be telling you, go talk to him, go talk to him, oh, evangelize him, share the gospel. You're going to feel it and you're going to be like, ah. true signs of a believer. Amen? I'm not saying that we're going to be perfect because we're not. And I'm not saying works are going to get you to heaven because they won't. But if you are truly saved, if you are a believer, you will bear good fruit. Amen? Let's close our eyes and pray. Lord, we give you thanks, Father, for this night. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks, Father, because you are a holy God, but also a loving God. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to have the Holy Spirit to help us live this life. Sorry, God, every time we offend you, Lord. We're, we're so sorry, Lord. Thank you for the forgiveness of all of our sins. The ones that we committed today and the ones that we're going to commit till we die. Lord, thank you for forgiving them already, God. You are merciful, God. And thank you because your mercies are new each day, Father. And thank you most importantly, Father, because when you see us, Lord, you see Christ. And that's a good thing, God. I pray for every person here that you convict us with your word. That you convict us. That you show us, Father, if we are producing the good fruit that you demand from us. And if we're not, Father, that we can bow our knees to you, Lord. I thank you for each person here. I pray for each person here, Lord. I pray that your word can work in their lives, God, and sanctify them, Lord, that they can bear good fruit, that they can grow in the knowledge of your will and our spiritual wisdom and understanding. Bless us tonight. Let us come home safely. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.